VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshat Rati. This week, luck, location, and lots of risk. Last year, venture capital firms invested $70 billion into climate tech globally. And a lot of that money came from one place, Silicon Valley. But how did a place better known for investing in social media and silly internet companies start investing in hard tech designed to solve real world problems? That's what we are going to talk about today with my guest, Dipender Saluja. He's one of Silicon Valley's early venture capitalists and a veteran climate tech investor. Transforming energy is probably the biggest opportunity in the history of the world. I think investing for financial returns and social good is not only possible, I think it's easier to do than not. Dipender is the managing director of the Capricorn Investment Group, which has some $9 billion under management. The group was created in 2004 to manage the money of eBay billionaire Jeff Skoll. But it's not all Skoll's money anymore. Capricorn's success as impact investors has attracted money from wealthy families, foundations, and even institutional investors. Dipender made handsome returns on his early bets on Tesla, SpaceX, and Twitter. He now leads Capricorn's Technology Impact Fund, which focuses on climate solutions. Through that fund, he has invested in battery recycling company Redwood Materials, electric aviation startup Joby, and even in nuclear fusion through Helion Energy. These are not household names yet, but could become so one day. There are few people as steeped in valley culture as the pain there. So I wanted to learn from him about how climate tech got started, why he continues to think like an engineer rather than an investor, and what responsibilities venture capitalists have for the things they fund. Welcome to the show, Dipender. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Now, you've been a VC for a very long time. Perhaps we can start by just having your story. How did you get into this business? What has kept you here? I grew up professionally in, here in Silicon Valley. And next week, we'll be completing 35 years here. And uh, came here mainly to study and work in the semiconductor industry three decades ago. And it was a lot of fun, um, you know, because it was this exciting period where the semiconductor industry was getting disaggregated from where the only real way to do semiconductors in those days was to be part of a vertically integrated company that had it all, that had their own design, that had their own fabs, that had their own software, their own IP, and they would build these systems that were very expensive and needed a lot of capital, but were changing the world. Semiconductors are made with silicon, and they are what computers run on. It's that material that gave the region its nickname, Silicon Valley. 
Dipender arrived in the valley at a moment when the people who had started out in big semiconductor companies like Texas Instruments and Intel were taking their experience and getting creative. Anybody with a good idea anywhere could design a product and not have to be part of some large institution or company and create a description of what they had built in a language and ship that description to a fab in most cases in Taiwan at that time and even today and just take that description and put it onto silicon and you would get a silicon chip and you could iterate on it you could work on it and then you could then take that chip and write software on it or build a system out of it and ship it to various parts of the world predominantly asia at that time and get a full product you know whether it was a phone or a computer or a desktop box or whatever electronic product you wanted so that was a beautiful thing because it really led to the explosion of the electronics industry and as that started exploding you know we all were starting to think what impact were electronics and semiconductors having on the rest of the world you know we were building technology for technology's sake and that can be a lot of fun but we would look at some of these other industries like you know i remember in our semiconductor days for some reason i have no idea why but people started picking caterpillar as an example as sort of the metaphor for a company that had such a large footprint yeah. and had made real products but the, the industrial the manufacturer exactly, caterpillar that category right which was that they were devoid of technology as we call technology in silicon valley i have no idea why i mean i'm sure caterpillar had <laughs> a bunch of uh, technology in it but you know you use something for language and caterpillar was the example so that whole category of these industries that were very large and i would say energy in general could be one industry that you know came up but agriculture food healthcare and transportation you know thinking through that and thinking about what next for my career i really felt excited about the opportunity in energy to make things better cheaper faster but it was also representing a very large problem which was the forms of energy that we had grown up using were literally you know out of the stone age as far as silicon valley was concerned yeah as one of the well known vcs in silicon valley would say is it's not a good excuse to use stones just because there are lots of stones around right so this was a way to think about getting out of the stone age how do you combine tech with some of those energy technologies what i'm hearing you say is that you didn't start out as investing in companies that would solve the climate problem you were just looking for companies energy companies that would be better off were they to be able to use the valley technology coming out in electronics and software is that right so your observation is correct that the majority of the companies that we've done have been around climate and we've had a thesis around that and have gone looking for opportunities that have a positive impact on the climate problem but we haven't been exclusively focused just on that so we've done a few things outside of climate they're all in that category of a deep technology problem and deep technology solution that improves an industry like energy or transportation agriculture food healthcare etc i would say i don't know maybe 70 80% of what we've done has largely been aimed at climate and clean tech or renewables so if you were to distill your investment thesis now having done it for a while or even if 
you want to talk about how your investment thesis might have changed over the time. How would you distill that? So we're looking for large problems in the world, like climate, and that is the area of focus right now. And then differentiated technologies that move the needle. And one of the important things we look at is doing it at large scale. Now, you hear that all the time, so it's a question of what does that mean? A great example, because we can do it in hindsight as well, is uh, is cars. You know, for the longest time, electric cars were a bit of a joke. I remember Top Gear doing videos 15, 17 years ago where they would essentially make fun of electric cars as being essentially golf carts. Yeah. It was always viewed as this was going to be a super niche and it was you know, not something that could really compete and do much in the world. It's 20 miles back to the garage and I know I'm going to run out of juice. I'm going to run out of juice in my EV1 and the gangs in Los Angeles will get me and cut me up into little pieces. We all in Silicon Valley knew that automotive was the industry you stayed away from because it was just the opposite of what we were used to here from a speed point of view, from a profitability point of view. I used to joke at that time, the one thing you have in common with startups and automotive is they're both losing money all the time, right? So that's something we knew that you're constantly on this edge of bankruptcy. Right. And you were an early investor in Tesla. So what convinced you at that time to bet on it? It was simple science and math, right? For all of us who've been electrical engineers or electrochemical engineers, the math was pretty clear that the way power electronics was evolving and the way batteries were evolving, at that point in time, lithium-ion batteries had started making their moves out of the power tools industry that they had originally been developed for into consumer electronics. At that time, our laptops had started getting lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, moving on from nickel-cadmium batteries. That's right, exactly. And so when you looked at those curves and where they were headed, and you applied even just a little bit of Moore's Law to all of that, you could see that those would converge very nicely. Named after Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, Moore wrote a paper in 1965 noticing that the amount of transistors you could put on a chip doubled roughly every two years. And he depicted that on a curve, continuing for the next 10 years. That was a wild extrapolation of very little data. And amazingly enough, that 10 doublings in complexity that I predicted turned out to be nine doublings, actually. Pretty close. A remarkable enough prediction that people still reference it today. It got the name Moore's Law, which has stuck to everything that changes exponentially ever since. And back in 2006, the painter, after coming up in the semiconductor industry, where this curve was well-known, looked at lithium-ion batteries in laptops and thought there could be a similar curve to drive down the price of lithium-ion batteries, if you could just make enough of those cells. If I remember correctly, HP and IBM were like the leaders in the laptop business, and the entire capacity that they were using was probably good for a few thousand Teslas at that time, yeah. right? Because you were going to replace a device that needed nine cells with a device that needed 6,000 cells, let's say. Looking at it from this high technology side, a, a, a software problem or a semiconductor problem, to one person from one vantage point, working with 6,000 of something can be a huge problem or can be a huge obstacle. 
But to a simple computer, whether it's 6,000 or four, it's, it's, it's nothing, right? I mean, you can handle millions of decisions in a second, trillions of decisions. And so that was hardly a problem. And just bringing that thinking from two different industries has made such a big impact. And it sounds simple now, but the whole world at that time was obsessed with how do you get away with the smallest battery possible? And along came this company that said, how do you build the biggest battery possible that you can fit into a car? And people said, you're crazy. That's the toughest, most expensive part of it. Why aren't you building the smallest? Well, it's very simple. If you have a bigger battery, you end up with, let's say generously at that time, a couple of hundred miles of range instead of 40 miles of range, which means every time you cycle a battery, you get 200 miles instead of 40 miles which means the number of times you cycle those cells is five or six times less than the smaller battery. And you've solved for a big part of the problem, which is cycle life. It's something we've all experienced. A new phone's battery just doesn't provide the same level of charge two years later. That's because lithium-ion batteries are complex chemical boxes where small things keep going wrong every time you charge the battery. Tesla's solution was to build a bigger battery with many individual cells in it. You have a much better way of managing the pack if a couple of cells out of a 40-mile battery go out of whack versus a 300-mile battery go out of whack. It's a non-event. And these problems were not even considered because the fundamentals of how do you deal with 6,000 components was like an obstacle. Right. Many of your recent investments are in the space of electric aviation, are in nuclear fusion. Now, both of those technologies, so to speak, aren't in the scaling decarbonization now moment. They are 10, 20, maybe 30. I mean, fusion has been talked about for so long. But you think because they are better products, an electric plane would be a better product. Nuclear fusion would give us infinite power forever. And they also happen to have decarbonization, that it's a good bet to make. Is that fair? You know, our role is, as investors is to invest in things that are significantly better, that are solving a problem that has not been solved, that are riskier. I mean, to some extent, you know, risk is always considered a bad word. Everybody wants to avoid risk. For venture, the role really is to invest in those risky companies. In fact, as odd as it sounds, there's a problem if you're not taking enough risk because then you're not solving an important enough problem or a problem that deserves to be solved or that really deserves this kind of capital. The role of this capital is to solve that kind of risk. And and it's it's reflected in the returns that are expected from this capital as well. You know, right. this is it's you've got to return a lot to keep up with the expectation of of this asset classes. Right. So you need some risky meaty ideas. Transforming energy is probably the biggest opportunity in the history of the world. I think investing for financial returns and social good is not only possible, I think it's easier to do than not. And that one to me means more in energy because one of the things in venture capital that people have not asked is like, is it possible to invest in things that are profitable and do good for the world? 
I find it harder to pick things to invest in which really have no obvious good for the world. I mean, to be able to look into a crystal ball and say, you know, selling pet food on the internet is going to be a big deal. It would be very hard for me to do. But on the other hand, if I look at what are the big challenges in the world, what are the kinds of things that the world can't do without? And if I can find a company to build that addresses that, that to me is like actually quite easy. After the break, we talk about what Dipender has learned from past failures and the investments he thinks are going to change the world. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. Dipinder and I grew up in India. It's a country that has massive potential for scaling clean technology. But it's been hard to unlock. I wanted to know how Dipinder thinks about the challenge of getting innovation from one part of the world to another. So, I mean, this is one of those interesting problems where if you just solve it in one area of the world, it's not going to make a difference, right? It's also not a reason to not solve it in one area of the world. You just have to solve it in as many areas as quickly and as well as possible. You don't ignore the l- most populous countries in the world because by definition, that's where um, the consumption is going to be. Like, yeah, that's where know, the impact is. That's where you could make money. It's- that's right. And there's a really cool graph that I used to use 15 years ago in the early years of when we were evangelizing this, which is a graph of progress and energy consumption. It plots the countries that are well recognized in the modern definition of industrial progress, like per capita GDP, and their per capita emission. You learn a lot from there. One thing you learn is all progress was proportional with energy over time. When you look at the time curve, right? There's no, there's no mystery there. You produced more if you had more energy. And that remains true today. Obviously, the good news from those graphs is because some of those populated regions couldn't afford it, their per capita consumption has remained low. But what's clear is if they take the same path, that's going to be a disaster yeah. uh, for a variety of reasons. Right. This is coal versus solar for India. A very clear example, right? We've gone from conversations 10 years ago, which was complaining about how the cleaner way, the better way was more expensive and that it was a burden on a bunch of communities and countries 
to have to take that path of cleaner energy because it was more expensive while the rest of the world had prospered and developed through cheaper energy, which was not as clean, to now today, 10 years later, where those cleaner options are actually cheaper. To your example, solar versus coal, almost anywhere in that part of the world, if you're building it today, it's going to be much cheaper if you build a solar power plant. Yeah. So then it comes down to what's the right focus. Obviously, we would all love for innovation to happen everywhere in the world. And innovation is not anybody's you know, birthright or exclusivity, right? And innovation comes from all over. But you can't ignore the fact that there are certain regions in the world where innovation happens faster and comes to fruition better. And definitely here, you know, in these four or five zip codes around where we are sitting today, that innovation has come a lot more. But deployment is not limited by any means to here. In fact, if anything, there's very little deployment. In fact, one of the big complaints of this region is that all this innovation happens. And then when it comes to scaling and manufacturing, people leave. I think the short answer to your question would be, we have to focus on deployment to begin with. And deployment is something all of these technologies and companies that create them crave for. I know there's a lot of interest in solving that. And I think something like that would move the needle a lot further in the bigger scheme of things than necessarily trying to to just say, how do we replicate Silicon Valley? But I don't find enough going on yet to say, how do we do the simpler stuff, which is enable cheap capital to flow from parts of the world where cheap capital is plentiful to parts of the world where that cheap capital can be put to work to deploy some of these forms of energy. The high cost of capital, or put crudely, high interest rates, is a big problem across developing countries for financing clean energy. It's something we talked about in our episode with Rebecca Shirley from the World Resources Institute and Makhtar Diop of the International Finance Corporation during COP27 in Egypt. We'll link the episode in the show notes. The issue will come up again in a big meeting in Paris in June, when Barbados Prime Minister Mia Motley and French President Emmanuel Macron bring together world leaders to discuss how to reform the global financial system to solve problems of the 21st century, including climate change. But at the same time, I also don't feel bad about the fact that focusing on innovation where it's happening well is not wasted because that innovation, when you are building forms of energy, it's a lot more applicable to global markets than something, let's say, that would be in fashion or even food for that matter, right? Energy is pretty universal. So all the advancements in solar have pretty much gone global. All the advancements in batteries have gone global and will continue going global. It's just tipping points at different states. So I don't see anything in our 50, 60 companies that we've done over the last decade and a half that are exclusive to just one geography or the global north or the global south. I think they will get everywhere and we want them to get everywhere. I mean, talk about our new exciting companies. Well, not so new as Redwood Materials, the battery yes. recycling company. Yes, it started you know, in California and Nevada, but it is one of the biggest looming problems and opportunities in the world. Yeah. Batteries are consumed everywhere. Electronics are consumed everywhere. Today they're shipped 
to get recycled and taken care of in the future they will be recycled where they are and redeployed everywhere right and yeah. it'll be a very large industry around the world it yeah. won't be just limited to where it was developed or invented there is a view of venture capital which fair and fair you can decide but they have bet on companies that have also caused more problems than they've solved them take the troubles that facebook is going through over democracy issues or or freedom of speech or twitter which is facing similar problems in in parts like india when you think about venture capital what is it that it's doing well and where is it failing so i would say you know venture capital has been just such an amazing tool in creating the essence of what silicon valley is you know everybody's obsessed with replicating this and one of those critical ingredients for that perfect storm is venture capital and it's that mindset that venture capital comes from now having said that there are very few rules so i can't paint it with one broad brush but the aspects that are common is it is at the end of the day about investing in very very early ideas to take very high risk and to go after you know making sure that these companies can come to life now i would say that at that stage of the company you're not thinking about what problems could it create 15 years from now we've not observed any discussion where people sit around and say you know what this product's going to really go stir the pot <laughs> in the political hallways of the world right i mean it's like in fact if anything the initial reactions to this was kind of ridiculed right i mean initially these were pretty simple ideas of sorts right they were like hey maybe this is just a nice bite sized way of communicating so who would have thought right so whether everybody comes out and says let's simulate every possible outcome and try to avoid something i think that would kill the innovation right, right? i mean that's a responsibility that you can't put on anybody right now 15 years down the road when a company evolves into something yes of course people have to think about it and say how do you do it by then it's well out of venture capital you said one of the things that is excellent about venture capital is that it allows for failures because having failures or at least some of it or enough of it is a sign of success just talk us through some of the failures that you've had in your career specific examples and what have they taught you about clean tech and how we scale the biggest failure in a single category for us has been in doing the transition from innovating in solar pv technologies to having commercial success with those pv technologies and the failure in that case was not recognizing that for a very long period of time most of the world except for china would have no appetite to manufacture solar or to adopt new solar technologies that was a very important observation and lesson and that's not something you could have predicted so yeah i think i mean if you can predict a failure you you, you avoid hopefully it. avoid it uh especially in a in an opportunity rich environment like silicon valley right where there's so many ideas i mean we do 6 7 companies a year new we obviously have to support the 30 40 50 that are alive there are a lot of companies you say no to 
and many that you say no to the first time, but then you know later on for a variety of reasons you decide it's a good idea. But there's a lot of no's, and I joke with our team all the time that if you're saying no, you're likely to be right because you're more correct when you say no than when you say yes. And in our business, the only thing that really matters is saying when yeah. you can say, say yes, yes because saying no is easy. And you'll be very smart for saying no, because most of those things that you say no to are going to fail. turn out to be yeah. failures. The most satisfying way of failing is when all of that that you assumed comes out correct, but somebody else does it better. That's the best way to fail, because that means the best product is winning, and it's winning for that reason. And you know, the people that were working on what you failed at did their best and did what they set out to be and and were able to achieve what they did. They just, somebody else did it better. better. And so the product comes to life. It's still a good idea, but somebody else right. does it and somebody else reaps the benefit of it. Wonderful. This was a fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Zero. Each week, Bloomberg Green publishes hundreds of stories about the climate crisis and its solutions, including an investigation from my colleague, Leslie Kaufman, looking into the greenwashy claims of recyclable plastics. TerraCycle is a favorite partner of consumer goods companies looking to make plastic packaging, such as chip packets, seem more environmentally friendly. Items like car seats, cigarettes, and baby food pouches are very difficult to recycle. But TerraCycle says it can do it. And so if a company pays TerraCycle a fee, they get to put a recyclable label on the package and claim all is well. In 2021, TerraCycle earned $71 million in revenue this way. But I wanted to know, where do all those baby food pouches, snack wrappers, and bubble wrap really go? To find out, I put trackers on all three of those items and followed them online and then literally all the way, well, to landfills. I was talking to two waste sorters and a founder of TerraCycle for this article, and it turns out that recycling plastic the way TerraCycle promises is far more dirty and uncertain than consumers and companies are ready to face. To read Leslie's article and see the photos of the investigation, follow the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please share it with a friend or someone who recently mentioned Moore's Law. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is by Wonderly. Special thanks this week to Kira Bindrim and Venkat Viswanathan. I'm Akshat Rati, back next week.